0: Welcome back to G-Truth. I got a lot to cover today. I got the last division, and this is the best, objectively, not subjectively, objectively the best division in the NBA, and that is the Pacific Division with Golden State, with, uh, with both of the LA teams, with Sacramento, with Phoenix. Phoenix is a bit of an outlier, but there are someone on the come up. And then I have my top of the line segment, where I have my spread predictions Um, I spread bets. And then I also have something that I've been working on this week, which is how did the Ravens' defense stop Russell Wilson? So I have all of those planned out. But before I can get to that, let me talk about some music that I've been been listening to. So I don't know why, but I started uh, watching The Office again. And part of The Office is Kevin, and he has a band. Scrantonicity, uh, which is a play on the actual album of The Police, of Synchronicity, that's what it's called. And so I've been listening to The Police actually for for a while, for this past week actually, and I remember listening to them a while ago, uh, specifically Every Breath You Take, Roxanne, Uh, I'm not sure how how, how you're supposed to say this because this is more spoken in the actual song, so, D do do D da, da, da. Hopefully that came out correctly. And then message in a bottle. And every little thing she does is magic. So these are the kind of songs I've been relaying over and over. And they're in my playlist too. I've been growing my playlist every single day. By however many songs. One, five, ten songs. It's fun. It's fun. Because it's all memories. So now with that out of the way, and now that you know that I've, li- I've been listening to the police for the past week, now I can move on to the Pacific Division. Oh, before I say anything else, I've been told as feedback that I pause way too often or without a significance to it. So now when, I'm, when I make a pause, it'll be after a point that I'm trying to make. But usually whenever I have a pause, it's me trying to think about what to say next, mainly because I don't have the right words coming like that to my mind. But I'm getting better at it, and I'll do my best. So that's going to be what I'm going to be trying to do vocally, or, or speaking out loud for this whole episode, and in the future, trying to fill in those gaps of speech with more words and... Just thinking a lot faster, being quick on my feet. Alright, so let's start off with the Pacific Division. The Pacific Division has the Warriors, both of the LA teams, the Sacramento Kings, and the lowly Phoenix Suns. Clearly, this is easily the best division in the whole NBA, and both of the LA teams, the Lakers and the Clippers, lead this division ahead of, ahead of the Golden State Warriors as well as the whole conference, and possibly the whole NBA, with only the Bucks and the 76ers to really contend with them. But I'm gonna go through every single one of these teams and talk about what I think about them, where they're heading to, and what their big plan is, or whether or not they do have one. So let's start off with the Golden State Warriors. They got D'Angelo Russell and Willie Cauley-Stein. This is actually really good news, not only because they lost Kevin Durant and they got something from the Nets in return for Kevin Durant, but also because of the news that Clay Thompson is most likely out for this whole season. So look for a lot of pick and roll between D'Angelo Russell, Willie Collie Stein, uh, Steph Curry, and Willie Colley Stein. Pick and roll, pick and pop, everything. But also, this is going to be a very interesting season with. D'Angelo Russell, like I said, with Clay out, now do the Warriors trade him for a different piece? The one that popped up that I saw on, I think, Instagram, or maybe in Bleacher Report, was trading him for Andre Drummond, which would be really interesting. But that would only work if Clay were to come back. So do the Warriors trade D'Angelo Russell now with Clay potentially being out, or do they keep him for this season and then trade him next season potentially? And then if they don't trade him, Can he fit in? Can he play with the ball movement system that the Golden State Warriors have instilled with Steph Curry at that center? I believe yes. But it's it's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough transition for D'Angelo Russell, especially coming from the uh, Brooklyn Nets, where he was a lot more isocentric. Overall, I think the Warriors are going to be really fun to watch. They are an underdog, a sleeper team to make it to the finals, but they're going to be really fun to watch integrating this whole new core with Angela Russell, Willie Kleistine, and the potential of seeing Steph Curry return to his MVP self. Putting up crazy stats, we can see a whole lot of what he can do this season, especially with the three ball and by himself. Moving on to the to the Los Angeles Clippers. For the Los Angeles Clippers, I'm not really interested in the regular season for them. I'm looking forward to the playoffs with this team with Kawhi Leonard, Patrick Beverly. I don't know why Patrick Beverly is the second name that comes to mind. Paul George, Lou Williams, Montrezl Harrell, Landry Shamet too, Ivica Zubac too. This season's going to be fun for them, of course. But the only games I can see being really highly entertaining for the LA Clippers in the regular season, is, is are the ones that are in LA against the Lakers, the Battle of LA. Even though LA is always going to be a Lakers town, the Clippers can finally make a statement against them this season and onwards. But the playoffs is where they are going to be much must-watch television, and also we're not we're not going to know how good they are. How good they can be until at least a month into Paul George's return, where we can see whether or not they are true title contenders. And they are, but how much of a title contender, how much of a title contender are they? Are they for sure lock-ins to win the whole thing? Or with Paul George in the mix, are they a bit more interesting with the way that the ball movement works? Moving on to the Sacramento Kings. They are a young, exciting team with Darren Fox, Buddy Heald, Marvin Bagley. They got a Bogdanovich, too. But the problem is, for that trio, and it just came out today, Marvin Bagley is out four to six weeks with a fractured thumb. Now, that does hinder their chemistry for this season early on, when they, I believe, had a good chance of contending to make the playoffs not for the title but for the playoffs and obviously their first loss of the season in their first game came against the suns where they really got blown out and it's disappointing of course but i think that they're going to be fun to watch they are a good team when they play high pace basketball run in transition go out on the fast break they're really good and they can make the playoffs but obviously that's not the way you want to start the season. They're still maturing, they're still blending together, which is also why I don't think this Marvin Bagley injury, or why I think this Marvin Bagley injury hurts them a lot more than meets the eye. I really want them to succeed, of course, but for them, this is more of a thing of the future, looking forward past this season and how they're going to blend together and how they're all going to develop together, than them succeeding right off the bat this season. But they are a good team going forward. Before we talk about the Lakers, I actually want to talk about the Phoenix Suns. That way I can start off with the Golden State Warriors and Clippers and end off with the Lakers rather than end off with the Suns. So, talking about the Suns. They are also just like the Sacramento Kings. They are also a young team except with Devin Booker, DeAndre Aiden, Kelly Oubre. They also have one of the Bridges. However, they've had multiple seasons with Booker there, as well as last season with DeAndre Ayton there, where Booker's played amazing, dropping 70 points against the Celtics, but they still lose. They still lose. Even last season, with DeAndre Ayton there, and a lot more expectations, not to make the playoffs, but to actually win some more games. They actually went backwards win-wise. I thought that they would do a lot better last season. And this season, they should do a lot better with additions like Ricky Rubio and Kelly Oubre and DeAndre Ayton developing a bit more alongside Devin Booker and whether or not they can actually become that Kobe Bryant, kill O'Neal 2.0. They should be better this season. But in reality, they probably will not. It will be a miracle them to even come close to sniff the playoffs. I want to see them succeed. A lot of people want to see Devin Booker succeed because he is special. He's a special player. He's a special scorer. But they just can't win for whatever reason with him on the Suns. Moving on to the Los Angeles Lakers. They are fun to watch. Did you see that opening game against the Clippers? It was fun. Even though they lost, both teams were really fun to watch with Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James headlining the game. They obviously still run LA, as I mentioned before, even with the Clippers having their recent success. But they have LeBron James. They have the headlines. They are the Lakers, they are the head brand of LA basketball. They will make the playoffs, they should make the playoffs, and they will make the playoffs with additions such as Anthony Davis, DeMarcus Cousins, even though he's going to be out. They still have Rajon Rondo, they got Danny Green as well. They got a lot of players, they still have Kuzma, they have a lot of quality players. However, they're just like the Warriors, they have a lot of pieces together that are, they're on the team for the first time they are still jelling together. The chemistry is still trying to figure it out. Which is why I didn't have them in my standings predictions video on my other channel. I didn't have them in the top three seeds. I had them actually a bit lower. Because that chemistry takes time. And I also accounted for rest. And the only other question aside from will that chemistry get together. Is can they stay healthy enough. Between LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Can they stay healthy enough to compete? LeBron James last season had the strained groin or some groin injury. And that's the first significant injury that he's had his whole career. Can that conti- will that continue into this season? Maybe. I don't know. But the concern is there. Anthony Davis gets injured every single season with something. This season he has a sprained thumb. Will the timing of his injury because it will happen this season? cost them a championship. Additionally, with those two questions of their chemistry and their health, will the other guys, aside from LeBron James and Anthony Davis, be able to do enough to, when they're not producing, step up and compete against the other team and keep the Lakers in it? We saw that with Danny Green against the Clippers, which is great. But can that happen on a nightly basis, on a consistent basis? But we'll see. However, I believe that they will contend for the chip against the Clippers, as well as not only the chip, not only not only holding the throne of the NBA, but also the throne of LA, and, and cementing that the Lakers is what LA is about. That they are the head of LA basketball. Anyways, it's going to be a really fun season. Now that I'm done with these division summaries or recaps, but I really am looking forward to the season. A lot of duos out there in the league, almost every single team is formed of duos rather than trios. The trios are really more for the younger teams, if you really think about it and go into depth of it. However, now I'm going to be moving on to the top of the line segment with my spread predictions. For this upcoming week. Week 8 in the NFL. So I was going through. This. This whole week. This whole schedule. For week 8 NFL. And it was tough. It was tough to decide. Who wins. Because there are some games. That can really easily be upsets. Sleeper upsets actually. You can have. The Cardinals against the Saints. Being upset. You have. The Bills are favorite, The Eagles. Bills. Upset. You can have that. Bears are favored. Chargers, Bears, that can be an upset too. Bucks, Titans, Titans are actually favored. The Buccaneers can be an upset as well. There are a lot of games here that have potential upset possibilities. However, we're not looking at upsets, we're looking at the spread. So let's dive into my five games that I have predicted the spread for. So the first one that I have chosen is at 1 o'clock Eastern time. So I usually have the format of two games, 1 uh, o'clock Eastern time, Sunday night football, and then two games that are either 4 or 5 or 4.25 p.m. Eastern time. So the first one I have is the Eagles against the Bills. Now the Sprite's at 1.5, favoring the Buffalo Bills. However, I'm going to be picking the Eagles plus 1.5. Last week against the Dallas Cowboys in Sunday night primetime football, I noted that Carson Wentz was 1-4 and after that loss, 1-5 in Sunday night football games. What can I say? I looked it up. Trend continues. Guess what I'm going to say this week regarding Carson Wentz and his record? 23-13. and in outdoor stadiums. And guess what the Bills have? An outdoor stadium. However, Carson Wentz is also 9-15 on the road, but I think that that 23-13 in an outdoor stadium does trump the 9-15 record on the road. And with, Dar- and with Ronald Darby coming back for the Eagles off injury, that could really boost their defense. And even if you have questions about the Eagles defense heading into this game the Bills offense does not have the firepower does not have the ability to completely torch and exploit this Eagles defense no matter how bad the Eagles defense is it took quite an effort for the Bills to even put up 31 points on the Miami Dolphins and it was a close one too and I also predicted the spread right on that one as well Overall, I think that for this game, it's going to be a close one. But as long as the Eagles do not turn the ball over, and they have turned the ball over a whole bunch, especially with fumbling the ball, not interceptions, fumbles. If they do not turn the ball over, the Eagles should win this, actually. So I have the Eagles plus 1.5. Next, I have the Cardinals against the Saints. Could this be an upset game? Potentially, but I don't really think so. I'm gonna say no. This is not gonna be an upset. The Saints are just better than the Cardinals in every single way imaginable. But the Cardinals' offense has been quite impressive and has been on quite the roll, even with David Johnson being out potentially for this game and not playing that well in the past two weeks. I think that the Cardinals, with their offense being the way it is and as good as it has been, as good as it has, as good as it has been these past couple weeks, past three or four weeks, actually, I think that they keep it close, and I have them on their side of the spread, which is plus 10. But I do think that the Saints win this, because if Teddy Bridgewater starts, news of Drew Brees coming back is going to make a switch, go off in his head, and make him perform like he's never had before, like he never has before. There we go. So I have the Cardinals plus 10. Next is another potential really coin flip game. Could be an upset, maybe not. And that's the Panthers at the 49ers in Levi Stadium. I have the Panthers plus 5.5 on this actually. Last week proved me partially right about the 49ers. About their offense, not really their defense. Their defense, like I said before, is really good really good against pass, rush, pass, and run. Their offense only put up nine points against a Redskins defense that made Mitchell Trubisky look like the greatest offensive player that has ever walked the face of the earth. You can only put up nine points against them. I know that was slippery. I know it's raining. But still, nine points? Come on. Come on, Jimmy Garoppolo. You, you, you can do better than that. So the Niners' offense is subpar, and their defense is a monster. And with the way that Kyle Allen has been playing, I I think that the Panthers have a shot here, along with with Christian McCaffrey playing really, really well recently. But I will say that the only way that the Niners can win the spread, minus minus 5.5, is if they are able to do what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did twice, actually, And shut down Christian McCaffrey. They have the personnel to do it. And it's completely possible. The Niners can do it. It's just a matter of whether or not they will do it. And the ball is in in their court to do it. Otherwise, I see the Panthers playing this close. Not winning this, but playing it really, really close. Panthers, 5.5. The next game I have is the Raiders at Houston Texans. This one I'm, I'm... actually a bit more hesitant with, but I'm going to pick the Texans minus 7.0. The Raiders defense has been less than trustworthy this year, and the even though the Texans got beat by the Colts last week, let's be honest, the Raiders defense is worse than the Colts defense. The Colts defense has the personnel to stop Deshaun Watson. The Raiders defense simply does not, and, this, and Deshaun Watson did not play great against the Colts, and like I said, the defense for the Raiders is just not there. Deshaun Watson should have a bounce-back game. He will have a bounce-back game, actually, and the Texans are going to win this minus 7.0 spread. Now, for the big game, the Sunday night football game, Packers and Chiefs. Now, this had a lot of hype built up to it because everyone thought, okay, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, facing off, two very... Very comparable talents and abilities. Superstars where they're mobile. They can make crazy throws downfield. Stuff like that. And if I knew that the Chiefs had passion for homes, I would take them and they'd be favored to win this game actually at home. But that is not the case. Instead, I just know that they have Matt Moore and the Packers have Aaron Rodgers, who is red hot after coming off a 6 Total touchdown week last week. But if I'm Andy Reid and I know that Patrick Mahomes is full, ready to go against the Packers, I actually probably would rest Patrick Mahomes. And the reason why is because I do not want to risk injury with my star player. He has had three straight games where I've seen him come off a play and start limping around. Start limping around for... Some reason, maybe he hurt his leg. And in this past week, where you saw him go down with a dislocated knee, I think that you simply just gotta arrest him. Make sure he's healthy. And yes, you can say, no, they need Patrick Mahomes, especially for this game, especially now. Because if they lose, then they have two losses, and then they are far behind the Patriots who are steamrolling easy teams, and are currently sitting at, what, 7-0, and have the first seed. And we know that the Chiefs need the first seed in order to beat the Patriots and Tom Brady, because it's hard to beat the Patriots at Foxborough. However, I would say to that, I would much rather have a healthy Patrick Mahomes, completely ready, 100%, rather than the first seat and they hobbled Patrick Mahomes. So I say, I'm taking the Packers here, minus 3.5. And even if Patrick Mahomes is completely ready to go, you got to rest them because you're looking at the future, not now. All right, I'm going to take a break and then I have the big. Ravens' defense against Russell Wilson. How did they stop him? How did they slow him down? Coming up next after this break. And we're back. And let's cover the Ravens' defense against Russell Wilson. This is actually very interesting because it does take both sides of the coin, the Ravens' offense and the Ravens' defense, to really beat Russell Wilson so let's hop into it. This past Sunday, this past Sunday, the Ravens beat the Seahawks 32-16. I thought that the Seahawks were going to win this. I really, really, I honestly really, really did. I had them as my spread prediction. I thought that they were going to win. And I, like all the viewers, were on the edge of our seats just waiting for Russell Wilson to be Russell Wilson in the fourth quarter. To be clutch. To have that game-winning touchdown at the last second. That makes you go crazy and say, How does he do this time and time again? But that never happened. Actually, we didn't get much of Russell Wilson or that Seahawks offense except for the first and just a bit of the second quarter. So, naturally, I went to the film to figure out how the Ravens held Russell Wilson to 16 points. If you ask me, holding Russell Wilson, a player of his caliber, to 16 points is impressive. The first thing I noticed from the film was that the Ravens had exceptional time management, or in statistical purposes, in general in general statistical nomenclature, time of possession. This, this is the exact same way that the Colts beat the Chiefs three weeks ago. At first glance, the time of possession favors the Seahawks by 12 seconds. However, I'm, I'm going to narrow that down to the second half rather than the whole game Because in the second half, the Ravens either had the game tied or they led. And as we all know, the Ravens are a much better team when they play ahead. In the second half, the Seahawks had the ball for 12 minutes and 45 seconds. On the other hand, the Seahawks, sorry, the Ravens had the ball for 16 minutes and 56 seconds nearly fourteen of which came from scoring drives. That's a four minute and eleven gap in time in time of possession. This is important because it did not give the Seahawks a whole bunch of time to make a comeback after getting down twenty to thirteen or twenty-three to thirteen. And it prevented them from actually running the ball and mixing up mixing it up, going into play action and really fooling the defense with their whole game plan on the offensive side since they were down. The second thing that really stood out to me is the tackling by the Ravens' defense. They they are notorious for swarming the runner or the receiver. They do an exceptional job with that. Everyone swarms whoever has the ball. They time and time again got to the runner or receiver, immediately allowing no extra yardage. Now, of course, when the Seahawks ran the ball, there were times, maybe three times, where CJ Size or Chris Carson would get maybe a 10-15 yard gain on the run. But for the most part, they were contained to very small gains. And especially in the second half, the Ravens did an excellent job of stuffing the run. Third thing I noticed was the defensive game plan that the Ravens went into this game with. Of course, you have to go in with the game plan of Make everything tough for Russell Wilson. Always have someone in his face. Make him throw it on the run. Keep him thinking, not scanning that the field. Always looking at what's in front of him, which is a defender in his face. Make him throw it into tight windows. Make nothing easy for him. And as I was going through the film with this, I noticed a few mistakes by the Ravens that they quickly corrected. So, so the main mistake really was that they went into zone coverage. And I did not like them going into zone coverage for two reasons. The first reason I did not like them going into zone coverage is that it gave Russell Wilson time to create and playmake. Time to create and playmake. He had time because no one was really pressuring him while the Ravens were in zone coverage. So that just gave him all the time in the pocket to playmake downfield, Receiver wide open, or even scramble. He had three scrambles this game, three of which happened against zone coverage. He does an excellent job of keeping plays alive. And when you're not pressuring him, like the Ravens didn't do in zone coverage, you give him a lot of time to just dissect the defense. And just like Aaron Rodgers for Patrick Mahomes, he is his most dangerous when he has time and is left to play make for the whole game. The second reason I did not like the zone coverage by the Ravens was that you're just giving them easy stuff. You're just giving them easy stuff. The Ravens, like I said, did not get pressure on Wilson when they played zone defense. So he could just sit there, scramble, playmake, or just sit there and wait for a receiver to find the little gap between the zone coverages and just sit there and wait for Russell Wilson to throw it to him. And trust me, Russell Wilson found the guy. Over and over and over again because he is great. So, by playing in zone coverage, the Ravens made it far too easy on Russell Wilson and also gave him leeway to be his best, his most dangerous when he playmakes and is able to attack you from different ways. However, luckily, the Ravens stopped doing that and only started running zone plays every now and then to really keep Russell Wilson on his feet, to keep him honest, and only really in the red zone when everything was a lot more crowded together and you can actually play zone a bit easier. And they did more of what they really should have been doing throughout the whole game, which is play man to man. And they did so in an excellent way. They played tough, they got pressure on on Russell Wilson consistently, and they gave him really tight windows to throw into. If you look at the plays the Ravens ran man to man in, there was always a guy in Russell Wilson's face forcing him to throw it, maybe even force it into tight coverages for an incompletion, and they never allowed him to play, make, or scramble. He was never able to escape the pocket and attack you from multiple ways. Of course, this is Russell Wilson we're talking about. So there's only so much you can contain him, and he's going to have great plays downfield where you just look at it and say, how the heck did he beat our coverage? Where we just had everyone locked down and he somehow beat us. Of course that happened against the Ravens, but they were able to make it so that that didn't happen on a consistent basis, and it was more of an abnormal occurrence. And overall, the Ravens did a great job in man-to-man. Leading to the Marcus Peters Picks 6 while in man-to-man coverage. However, there are multiple things that led to this play happening. And watching it in the film was amazing and beautiful. So Tyler Lockett is not Marcus Peters' guy. However, he runs a corner route that is perfectly defended by another defender. However, he is on Marcus Peters' side, very close to him. Marcus Peter, however, is guarding John Brown. And this is all man to man. Marcus Peter is on the outside with John Brown and man to man. But, for whatever reason, he drops back to where Tyler Lockett runs his corner out. Now, this leads Russell Wilson to think one of two things, or maybe even both. That his palm fake and his eye, in his eyes staring down Tyler Lockett, got Marcus Peters to start going that way. That's one thing. The second thing is, oh, this is just a disguised zone coverage where maybe someone's going a bit up to a cloud, maybe someone's playing a hook zone, something like that. Maybe this is just a disguised zone coverage because he wasn't looking anywhere else. He was just looking to the right side of the field. And he determines by this, since it's... Maybe it was own coverage, or maybe I just tricked Marcus Peters with my eyes and my pump fake that Jerron Brown is wide open for easy yardage. But Marcus Peters played Russell Wilson like a fiddle. As soon as, as soon as Russell Wilson finished his pump fake and started bringing it back, you could tell Marcus Peters was already starting to run for that pick six. He had a great bait against Russell Wilson, and he immediately jumped the ball that was floated by Russell Wilson. Not a great throw by Russell Wilson as it just floated, and you could tell that as soon as Russell Wilson threw that ball, he knew it was a mistake as he was already starting to run before it even hit Marcus Peters' hand. So, this is how the Ravens' defense beat Russell Wilson. One, the offense was great with time of possession, once they had the lead, and even even when they were tied in the second half, they had great uh, tackling, they had great tackling. Third thing is that they had man-to-man coverage that made everything tough on Russell Wilson, forced him into tough throws, tight windows, always had someone in his face, made him frustrated. And they also had a bit of luck by skill, with Marcus Peters on his own, unscripted, getting that interception, as well as DK Metcalf having a fumble when no one touched him, returned for a touchdown, that ultimately made the score 30-13. T- uh, to thir- 30 to thirty So the next question is, does this mean that the Ravens' defense is back to their status last year, where they were the second-best defense last year? My answer is, not quite. Not quite. They still got torched in zone defense. The run game for the, for the Seahawks was doing pretty good until the Ravens started clamping down on that in the second half. And the Ravens got beat in man-to-man coverage on quick throws like slants or curls. And even if they were to play man-to-man consistently throughout the whole game, If they were not able to shut down that run game from the Seahawks or from any team going forward, they're pretty doomed. An example that comes to mind is the second drive for the Seahawks. The Ravens ran man coverage on the first four plays of that drive, which were all run plays. And seeing that the run game for the Seahawks was going pretty smoothly against their own man coverage defense, the Ravens switched from their main defense to a zone defense for the next three plays, which were all pass plays. The first play uh, with, with that zone defense, they actually got a sack for zero yards. But on that play, Russell Wilson was actually about to scramble. And they got very lucky with their open field tackling that Russell Wilson did not break off for a first down. The next two plays were passing plays that combined for a total of 46 yards. And then upon realizing that they made a mistake going to zone defense and that Russell Wilson was torching their zone defense, they switched back to -to man-to-man defense. But it was far too late since the X were already in Baltimore territory and starting to get a bit tricky with with their run game and pass game clicking early on, on that drive. They started running read option, play action plays, and eventually got a touchdown against man to man defense. So, I think that the Ravens' defense is going to be fine for the season. But as long as they stick to their scheme or their game plan, in this case it was man to man defense and making everything difficult, as soon as they do not stick to that, they will get crushed. Anyways. That has been my episode for the G truth. This is episode eleven. There were some other episodes on my other channel, but this is episode eleven in totality. And just recapping what what was covered today, the Pacific Division, the last division that I that I am to cover, and by far the best division I am to cover. I am to cover for this season. I covered that as well as my top of the line, my spread predictions for Week Eight and the Ravens' defense against Russell Wilson in my film analysis for that. Anyways, that has been the G-Truth. Thank you for listening. Thank you for staying tuned. Hopefully, I was able to... I, I think I did a much better job of only pausing when I were to make a point and being a bit quicker on my feet when speaking and keeping a nice flow. If I was not, or if you have any other suggestions, be sure to comment that down below. I would love to hear any suggestions or any feedback. Any feedback possible, really. Anyways, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Peace out.